0: Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF
1: Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Noah Canvasser
0: from the University of California, Davis, talking about surgical management of stone disease.
1: <clears throat> My name is Noah Canvasser, I'm an urology faculty at the UC Davis. Um, I'm going to talk today about surgical management of stone disease. Uh, I do want to thank, obviously, the organizers. It's unfortunate that we have to put this together given this time, but I, I do appreciate um, uh, the organizers, Dr. Hampson, and everyone for uh, allowing us to give this talk. And I, and I do wish everybody uh, safe and healthy uh, next few months or however long it takes till this all goes away. Um, so, I am a, uh, a consultant for Boston, Boston Scientific. Uh, I'm going to try to refrain from really recommending any product. Uh, today, I think that it's a, it's certainly a preference, um, and uh, there's lots of different devices that can be used. The objectives today, we're going to review case selection criteria for stone surgery, some landmark stone surgery papers, uh, we're going to review the three contemporary stone surgical procedures, ureteroscopy, PCNL, and shockwave in that order. Uh, I'm not going to talk about uh, laparoscopic, robotic, or open approaches uh, to treat stone disease. Um, and specifically looking at equipment, techniques, outcomes, and uh, complications of these techniques. Uh, but I do want you to remember that regardless of what I tell you today, uh, your attending is always right. Again, there's a lot of uh, preferences and opinions related to some of this stuff. Obviously, there's good literature supporting the things I'm going to talk about. Um, but if, uh, if, you, if you are in a case and you say, but Noah said something, just remember your, your attending is going to be right uh, every time. So let's talk about um, case selection. When we're thinking about lower pole stones less than 10 millimeters, you really can choose either ureteroscopy or shockwave lithotripsy. This is based on a very uh, prominent study, lower pole two. This was Dr. Pearl and the lower pole study group. It was an RCT comparing shockwave and ureteroscopy for stones less than 10 millimeters in size. You can see that the uh, three-month stone-free rate was uh, lower, actually, for shockwave lithotripsy, and second intervention rates were higher for shockwave lithotripsy, although these were not significant. Um, But 90% of patients who underwent shockwave lithotripsy would choose that procedure, again, compared to about 60% of those with ureteroscopy, uh, which speaks to the um, uh, less morbid um, option. Uh, So given this, we consider both reasonable options. And, of course, you could argue that maybe this study had lower enrollment um uh, and so possibly underpowered to show any significance in the in the stone free rates for larger stones the guidelines are going to say that pcnl is uh, recommended that's why i underlined it here um but obviously for the for the mid-size lower pole stones ureteroscopies could certainly be considered on a per case basis we'll talk a little bit about single use scopes later but that might be kind of the stronger indication to use a single-use scope given potential for scope damage. Uh, But the indication to do PCNL for lower pole stones is based on another landmark paper, lower pole one. This is again an RCT comparing shockwave and PCNL for stones less than 30 millimeters in size. Uh, Mean stone size was about 14 millimeters, uh, but you can see a fairly significant um, difference in three month stone free rates between PCNL and shockwave, uh, along with a higher second intervention rate for the shockwave group. And there was really no main difference in the the quality of life outcomes they looked at. For non-lower pole stones, um, less stringent on the guidelines, certainly less than 10 millimeters, shockwave lithotripsy and ureteroscopy are both uh, reasonable options. Greater than 20 millimeters, certainly you're going to start thinking about a PCNL. Um, However, in peds, uh, in kids, you could certainly consider shockwave lithotripsy, but the guidelines are clear that if you're going to go for a large stone, you should incorporate some form of drainage, either a stent or a nephrostomy tube. For those mid-sized stones, um, again, the guidelines are going to probably lean more towards shockwave and ureteroscopy. Although I do think the PCNL, uh, especially when we're talking about say mini PCNL, uh, could be a, a strong consideration for the, some of those mid-sized stones. Um, what about ureteral stones? So proximal ureter, um, typically we're thinking about shockwave lithotripsy or ureteroscopy. Um, although I think larger proximal ureteral stones, I mean getting up to that two millimeters or two centimeter size, could certainly consider PCNL as a reasonable option. And for mid and distal ureter stones, uh, it's pretty clear that ureteroscopy is going to have a higher uh, stone free rate, uh, but also uh, more morbidity compared to shockwave lithotripsy. But although this focuses on surgery, I think it's also important to note um, that observation is very reasonable for any. Uh, asymptomatic calculus stone. Um, for most patients that I see who are, are not having any symptoms, I typically tell them they've got somewhere between a 15 and 30% chance of having a symptomatic event over the next three to four years. Obviously, that's a broad range, but really the emphasis is that greater than 70% of patients are not going to have an issue uh, in the near future. Um, So that not everybody actually needs a a surgical intervention certainly there is a higher risk of progression of these stones of growth of these stones and that's why we focus on medical management. But there are some considerations uh, for patients who do have asymptomatic stones certainly if you're uh, uh, working with a pilot um, or a military personnel, you might want to consider treating those asymptomatic stones, a young female. who has planned uh, pregnancy in the near future, that might be a strong consideration to treat an asymptomatic stone. Or somebody who's going to be traveling or maybe have uh, poor access to medical care in the near future, that might be another scenario. We Murphy's Law uh, kind of predominates with, uh, whatever happen. So let's get into techniques. So ureteroscopy. Um, So the rates of ureteroscopy are climbing. Uh, Over the last 20 years, we can see that uh, ureteroscopy um, uh, as a percent of total treatments has been rising worldwide. Um, The U.S. falls in this sort of brown line here that you can see obviously climbing along with all the other countries reported in the study. Concurrently, we see a decline in shockwave lithotripsy. So it's essentially that the ureteroscopy cases are taking over some of these shockwave cases. You do see a little jump um, uh, in shockwave here, um, but for the most part, Um, shockwave rates have been have been decreasing. I think uh, some reasons for the trend are, one, uh, residency training. Residents are getting exposed to a lot of ureteroscopy, uh, but two, the technology of ureteroscopy is improving. So the first ureteroscope was really uh, reported on in the the early 70s. It was a small contemporary-sized scope, seven and a half French, but it only had 30 degrees of passive deflection, which really isn't uh, enough to um, treat any significant stones. The initial large series on flexible radioscopy by Dr. Fuchs uh, in 1990 had a larger scope, 10.4 French, but this obviously had a functional working channel similar to what we deal with today. Um, But deflection was was still a bit limited, 160 degrees in one direction, 70 in the other. Contemporary scopes typically are about 7.5 French for the fiber optic, a little bit larger for the digital. They most all have a 3.6 French working channel and now can uh, deflect 270 degrees in both directions. There are concerns, though, about um, reusable scope durability. Um, most scopes don't last forever, um, obviously, um, uh, and and there have been a number of studies looking at how long they do last. Um, this study published about 27 cases per scope, and then once they actually get repaired, the um, repaired scope lasts uh, tend to be shorter than um, the original scope. Most of the time this damage tends to be the distal shaft from uh, forcing or torquing that scope into a, a difficult area. Single-use scopes have really uh, gained a lot of um, steam over the past five or so years. Uh, most of these are a little bit larger than their uh, digital counterparts, but they all uh, work quite well. Um, uh, and are functional for for the needs. Um, they are a bit expensive. There have been some studies that show that single-use scopes actually um, could have similar uh, per-case costs to a reusable scope. Obviously, that's on a per-institution basis. Um, obviously, the environmental impact is also concerning. Although there is a study that shows that the uh, lack of uh, cleaning scopes um, uh, and uh, the waste from reprocessing scopes uh, might be um, uh, equivalent to the waste from uh, production of these single-use scopes. Um, I think that most people agree that a, a selective use uh, of single-use scopes is prudent. Um, certainly a large lower-pole stone we're going to be torquing uh, a bit for a long time, or in a patient who's got tortuous anatomy are both reasonable indications to use single-use scopes. So let's talk about flexible ureter scope manipulation. This might seem a bit um, elementary, um, but I think it's kind of a good review. So there's three ways you can move a scope. You can go in and out. uh, You can deflect up and down. Obviously that depends on if you, or the thumb action depends on if you have a standard or reverse deflection scope. But it's really the rotation where I find that most trainees struggle. Um, And uh, sometimes you have to take a step back and think about the movement that you're using. So if you are deflected up, the rotation of your scope is the same. And if you rotate to the left, your scope looks to the left. If you're deflected down, your rotation is opposite. Now I made a, a little video to kind of highlight this, um, but here's an example showing downward deflection, I rotate to the right and the scope looks to the left. Downward deflection, I rotate to the left and the scope looks to the right. And then with upward deflection, again, <laughs> it's the same. Rotate left, look left, rotate right, look right. And so if you're ever in a case and trying to figure out how to get into that last little calyx, just stop for a second and think to yourself, are you rotated down or are you rotated up? We're going to talk about my preference in a second, but if you you think from that aspect, oftentimes you can uh, stop guessing and actually uh, um, get it right on the first try. So um, when we think about uh, flexible nephroscopy, it's important to remember the uh, axis of the kidney. Um, so, the way the kidneys lie in the body, the calyces are actually posterior to the UPJ, to the entrance of where your, uh, uh, your flexible ureoscope enters the kidney. Therefore, uh, you have two ways to get to the calyces. You can rotate up and rotate towards, I mean, deflect up and rotate towards the calyces, um, but that puts you in an upside down position. Uh, so, the better option is to flex down and rotate away. So, we always talk about as we enter the kidney, we rotate away from the side that we're on. So this is just a brief demonstration of flexible nephroscopy at the end of a case. So this is actually the upper pole here. So it's medial to um, our UPG location. So we do rotate. There's a left kidney, so I'm rotating to the right there. But all the other calyces, as we go through them, again, this is a left kidney, my rotation is going to be to the left. So again, we rotate left to look right. And as we rotate through the kidney, the goal is to try to keep the calyx in view as you're backing out so that you don't fall upon that infidibulum and use your angle. And as we go down to the lower pole, all we're doing is rotating more and deflecting more. And I think this is really helpful to think about this um, in this way because sometimes you have a case that's a little bloodier, you can't see as well, and you have to kind of uh, drive-by feel. Um, so I paused the video right here where you can see the angle of the, um, of the kidney. Just that slight rotation to the left, again to look right, puts the calyces in line. Moving on to semi-rigid ureteroscopes. So Hugh Hampton-Young actually gets credit for the first uh, semi-rigid ureteroscope ever performed. He drove a, a rigid cystoscope into a mega ureter. I believe it was an accident. Um, but it wasn't until about 80 years later that we f- uh, first started to see semi rated ureroscopy take hold. Um, this was a 7.2 French a dual channel uh, semi-rigid scope. Um, contemporary scopes all are around this size now, 6 to eight and a half French. They pretty much all have dual channels. Um, these are independent, so you can irrigate through one and work through the other. Um, and this is uh, great for doing ureteroscopy in the distal and the mid-ureter. In women, sometimes you can obviously get into the proximal ureter as well. A nice technique uh, when doing some average I don't do a lot of uh, balloon dilation of um, the ureter. So if I can't get in just uh, on the first try, then we tend to do what's called tram tracking. So it's where you feed a second wire. In this case, we see a Benson wire going in uh, to the ureter as well. And the goal is to split the difference between the two wires. Obviously, you want to hit right in the middle. Um, In this case, you'll see that I slipped around that second wire, and I always say if you're not in a good position with some rigid ureteroscopy, back that scope up.
0: So we flip, so we back that scope up, and
1: realign, and again split that difference between those two wires, maybe a little twisting action with the scope, and you'll get in. Um, and, and using this technique, uh, obviously a lot of people use this technique, uh, really helps to prevent uh, or the need for balloon dilation of that intramural ureter. Let's move on to lasers. Um, <clears throat> so uh, initial lasers, these were pulse dye lasers, and dye lasers. Um, uh, they were fairly ineffective for uh, treating hard stones, um, and in addition, they replied, required replacement of the coumarin dye, which is, is toxic uh, and uh, I believe a bit messy. Um, Obviously, Holmium uh, YAG lasers really revolutionized kidney stone treatment. Uh, Holmium YAG lasers have a wavelength of uh, 2140 nanometers, which is similar to the spectral absorption of water. And what this means is that essentially the depth of penetration of your energy is low. Um, So the risk of uh, injuring nearby structures is is quite low. Uh, But these lasers are strong and powerful, so they really can break up pretty much any stone. Uh, More recently, we see the... um, kind of reemergence of thulium laser, thulium fiber, um, which also has a wavelength that's similar to the spectral absorption of water. Um, in addition, the damage zone of, uh, or because of this, the uh, uh, damage zone or the depth of penetration of thulium is e- even less than thol- Um The real benefit of thulium compared to holmium is that uh, thulium are a very high efficient laser. They only require 110 volt. Um, so you get a lot uh, higher potential frequency um, which might help for, say, dusting treatments. Uh, let's talk briefly about laser settings. So when we think about power, um, this kind of gets back to physics. So uh, power uh, is equal to energy per unit time. Um, but in terms of our laser, <coughs> we think about the wattage in terms of pulse energy times the rate or the uh, or the hertz. So pulse energy. So a higher pulse energy, um, a higher joules, um, Uh, controls, uh, I'm sorry, pulse energy controls fragmentation um, efficiency, so a higher pulse energy means you're going to fragment that stone more efficiently, faster. The downside, though, is you're going to have larger fragments, you're also getting more retropulsion of the stones. When you have a lower pulse energy, a lower joules, uh, you tend to have uh, slower fragmentation, Um, you'll have smaller stone size, um, but uh, you will have less retropulsion, So it's a balance, obviously, when we're treating this. We decide the pulse energy really based on the stone location. Is the stone, say, in the ureter without a backstop, um, where if you hit the stone with a lot of energy, it's just going to retropulse higher up the ureter, which is an ideal. Is the stone in the renal pelvis where it's going to move around a lot if you hit it? Or is it in a calyx that has a nice backstop behind it where you can hit it with a lot of energy and it's not going to move around a lot? Also, the density of the stone, certainly a more dense stone, um, is going to need a higher pulse energy in order to fragment Typical range for most machines, most lasers is 0.2 to 2 joules. Uh, as far as um, choosing the rate or the, um, the hertz, this controls the fragmentation speed. So the higher the rate, the more the fragmentation, uh, but also the more the retropulsion. The lower the rate, uh, less fragmentation and less retropulsion. Again, we choose this based on really the stone location. Again, a free floating stone in the ureter of the pelvis, is probably going to move around a lot more than a heel stone with a higher rate. In addition, the stone size, a smaller stone is going to move around a lot less. I'm sorry, a lot more than a, than a larger stone. So a larger stone can probably tolerate a faster rate. And this is really where we see the difference in contemporary lasers. Um, a typical range for a laser is 60 to 80 hertz. Obviously, the higher wattage lasers are really what's going to give us that 80 hertz or even up to 100 hertz um, uh, option. A lot of contemporary lasers uh, allow you to mol- um, uh, control the uh, pulse width. Um, think of this as like the energy density. So, for each pulse, that pulse can be, or that, that, uh, that uh, uh, watt can be given over a short period of time or can be given over a longer period of time. Um, so, short pulse width um, is better for fragmentation because that energy is applied quicker, so it's a bit stronger. Um, you do get more retropulsion, though, and there's potential for more, uh, more fiber burn back. With a longer pulse, you'll get more of a dusting effect. I tend to be less retropulsion and uh, less fiber burn back. So putting this into practice, turn my sound down. Um, So standard fragmentation technique, uh, so 0.8 joules, eight Hertz, typically a short pulse mode. If you have that option on your laser, Um, we tend to even use what's called, uh, I use it called a single shot technique where we're actually individually, um, individual taps on the pedal to hit the laser and you see that the stone stays in fairly good control um, in order to fragment it into small pieces Um, so we chose a a moderate pulse energy a low rate it's fairly well controlled um, but we do get large fragments with this obviously this is for somebody who's going to be extracting uh, a lot of these stones like myself conversely dusting uh is a technique where we tend to use a lower pulse energy and a higher rate so the inefficiency in uh, breaking up a stone with a low pulse energy make a lot of small stones is overcome by the high rate um, so that you can actually make a lot of stones or a lot of small stones quickly and if you have the option to use a long pulse mode that is uh, that is
0: certainly advantageous the popcorn effect So
1: this is somewhat of a middle-of-the-road technique. Um, So we tend to use a uh, more of a moderate pulse energy and a moderate rate um, in order to fragment a lot of stones into smaller pieces. It's not going to be as small as, say, dust, um, but it can be relatively efficient. Um, The downside is you tend to have a big pile when you're done, and it's hard to tell what's large and what's not large, but it, it can be used in certain scenarios. Let's talk about ureteral access sheath so the the goal or the the benefit of a ureteral access sheath is that it reduces renal pelvic pressures um, which leads to lower infection rate this is a, a the uh, tractor study um, that showed that uh, stone free rates were really not different between uh, ureteral sheath use and uh, and without a ureteral sheath um, but infection rates were lower so um, uh, rates of fever were lower and significant rates of sepsis were lower um, so that's really where the benefit is. It does allow multiple passes, but again, does not seem to improve stone-free rates. I think that is on a, on a provider basis. Um, the downside of uberdoxal sheets obviously are, are the concern for wall injuries. Uh, this this uh, photo has been shared numerous times and presented numerous times, obviously all, also from one of the uh, or papers. Um, and yes, these can be quite concerning. Um, the rates of the severe grade 2 and 3 injuries that you see on the right uh, were about 13%. There has been a prospective study looking at uh, rates of stricture after a severe injury, and they appear to be quite rare. Um, I think that most of the time we see ureteral strictures after uh, more of the severely impacted stones, as opposed to these injuries from an excess sheath. Stents. Um, so, uh, most people, or a lot of people, put stents in after ureteroscopy. However, there's been uh, no uh, shown no difference in UTI, strictures, unplanned ER visits, or stone-free rates for whether or not you use a stent. Um, I don't think stents are required. I think it obviously is a uh, preference of the provider. Um, and the guidelines pretty much state that if there's no evidence of ureteral injury, no evidence of ureteral stricture, you have a normal contralateral kidney, uh, no chronic kidney disease, and you're not planning to come take a look again, you do not have to leave a stent. Um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. And then briefly looking at outcomes. Um, So you'll see a lot of different published reports of uh, stone free rates after ureteroscopy. Um, This is the work that uh, we had done at Southwestern when I was a fellow with Dr. Pearl. Um, It is not yet published, although we hope to publish it soon. Um, This is true stone free rates for all comers. Um, uh, And you can see that a 55% is a lot less than what you might expect to see um, in uh, in the literature. and it just means that we're not as good as we think we are. And this, by the way, I'll mention is uh, is a very aggressive ureteroscopy approach where we're trying to truly extract every stone fragment uh, in the kidney. Um, now, there are some scenarios where I think we do a pretty darn good job. So, any ureteral stone, um, we have a pretty good clearance rate, um, as well as any solitary kidney stone less than ten millimeters, we do a pretty good job. But if you're starting to talk about larger stones, multiple stones, we're really starting to get to poor clearance rates. And again, I can't emphasize enough how, how much time and effort we spent trying to clear every single stone fragment. Um, uh, we just aren't as, as good as we think. The complications of ureteroscopy, um, so the things that I certainly tell my patients, so failed ureteral access, so I'd say it's about 1 in 30. Obviously, this is a wide range here from, these, uh, from this meta-analysis, but I typically say it's about 1 in 30 that I'm unable to get a scope into the ureter. Um, certainly, rates of uh, fevers and UTIs post-procedure up to 15%, but sepsis rate typically less than 4%, um, obviously lower if you're going to consider using a sheath. Um, and then strictures tend to be rare, um, but that's why you should be screening for patients who are, are at risk. The more rare uh, uh, risks of urinoma, perirenal abscess, ureteral avulsion, or obviously uh, mortality are really uh, quite rare. So let's talk about percutaneous nephrolithotomy. So Fernstrom and Johansson were really given credit for uh, the first PCNL. They removed small stones via mature nephrostomy tract uh, in the 70s, but five years later was when we really. Start to think about what we, what we consider contemporary PCNL. So Dr. Alkin um, would dilate and, and his group would dilate a mature nephrostomy tract to 26 French, leave it for five to six days prior to the procedure, and then actually go in with, uh, with the scope, fragment stones, and remove. Um, regarding access, Uh, There often is debated uh, urologist versus radiologist access. Um, Published reports have said that radiologist access is often not effective, and I I don't think that's really a fair um, uh, criticism of of radiologists because they're not the ones doing the stone surgery. I think that if you're going to have your radiologist get access for you, you should probably be in the room and help guide them to where you want, and we're going to obviously talk about access in a few minutes. Um, But... uh, but oftentimes radiologists aren't thinking about treating the stone they're often just thinking about getting the tube in um, <clears throat> this study did show that access related complications were higher in a radiology group compared to a urology group again i think it, it depends on uh, how much uh, role you played in, in that uh, where that tube was placed um, i will say though that if a nephrostomy tube was ever placed for an emergent uh, scenario, it is rarely effective. This was a nice study by uh, uh, Dr. Cobb, showing that only about one in five tubes placed emergingly were actually suitable uh, to complete a PCNL. So if your tube was placed for a uh, uh, urosepsis or AKI, yeah, you probably need um, uh, to, to pick a different spot. So let's talk about access. There's so many different ways to get access into the kidney. So you can use a triangulation method, a bullseye method, endoscopic, ultrasound. Uh, You can have IR do it, obviously. You can do it in the supine position, in the prone position. You can do it left-handed. You can do it right-handed. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Um, uh, whatever technique you can use to get, the t- to get the needle in the right spot is, is going to be the best uh, for you. There are some general principles, though, of good access. So one, you want to hit a posterior calyx. Um, certainly, you know, a lateral calyx, if there isn't anything lateral to the kidney, could be considered. But a posterior calyx is, is going to be uh, uh, typically ideal. You want your needle parallel uh, with the infundibulum. Um, Uh, with the goal to access on the papilla. Um, Going right right through the papilla or the fornix are both reasonable options. Um, And the needle angle, and I'll I'll show this with some diagrams in a second. So the needle angle should be pointed towards the ureteral pelvic junction. Um, In general, uh, at the lower pole, the needle angle is going to be steeper. At the upper pole, I'm sorry, shallower. At the upper pole, the needle angle angle is going to be uh, steeper. Um, And I say here, do not fear the second choice. So if you can't get the access that you want, um, due to angle, due to rib, due to um, nearby organ, pick a different spot. Um, As long as the second second spot uh, is still a good, uh, uh, follows these principles, um, you can always use a flexible scope. You can always use a laser. Fragment those into big pieces and then suck them out of the renal pelvis. But never hesitate to use uh, the second choice access point. So let's talk briefly about needle alignment so if you're going to go for the upper pole here uh hitting the calyx like this is probably not going to be ideal you want to obviously be in line with the infundibulum again that, that uh principle i just told you so again mid-pole access you need to be in line with the infundibulum same thing with the lower pole the goal is to line your needle up with the infundibulum uh, that way you're going to cause less um torquing on the calyx or on the on the cortex of the kidney typically less bleeding uh, as a result regarding the needle angle again uh the needle should be pointed towards the uretal pelvic junction so if you're going towards an upper pole access having a needle that's going up as well is probably not going to be ideal um, in addition think about the sagittal plane of the kidney um, the upper pole tends to be uh, in a more posterior location so that would be a reasonable access point or maybe that would be a reasonable access point a little bit towards the upj is more ideal uh, mid-pole is very similar to the upper pole uh, i think the issue comes with a lower pole access point Uh, where a uh, straight-on needle puncture is probably not going to work because the UPJ is obviously going to be up here, right? So you need to slope up, have a shallower angle in order to get into that lower pole. However, too shallow of an angle, which we sometimes see with nephrostomy tubes, uh, again, it's going to put you a little bit too far away, and your sheet's probably not going to be long enough. Uh, And typically with obese patients, you need to exaggerate these angles a bit more just because the kidney is is deeper. So again, upper pole axis, typically straight on or a slight angle towards the UPJ. But with a lower pole axis, you need to have a steeper angle in order to get in. Uh, Briefly, calyceal anatomy. Um, So at the lower pole, typically there are three calyces. You have the inferior calyx, the posterior calyx, and then an anterior or lateral calyx. And we often say that the posterior calyx is door number two. It's the second calyx up from the bottom. Um, and that tends to be your best posterior access point. For upper poles, uh, again, because the upper pole of the kidney sits more posteriorly, typically both axes are reasonable. And oftentimes there's a medial and a lateral calyx, and both, again, would be reasonable choices. Uh, for a midpole calyx, um, I think it's a bit harder to see on fluoroscopy. I think it's an easier access on ultrasound um, in order to hit that calyx. Obviously, there's a lot of variation in calyceal anatomy. This is just some general guidelines. So here's uh, just one example of access. This is done with fluoroscopy because I think it explains the point a little bit better. Um, This is a large renal pelvic stone. You can see an occlusion balloon is here. So uh, this was done with an air nephrogram, um, and you can. Uh, get a sense for where might be a reasonable access. So that is probably the lateral upper pole calyx. That'd be a reasonable access point. You have a mid pole calyx here. That's a reasonable access point. And you can also see door number two right there, uh, lower pole um, posterior calyx is a reasonable access point. We already did the triangulation here to figure out that this was in fact the posterior calyx. And you can see uh, my um, uh, hemostat there uh, picking my entry point. So as we access this kidney, again, the goal is to keep that needle in line with that infundibulum in the straight AP plane. We are advancing the needle until the tip is just at the calyx. And I chose this one because I think it's a really good example that we use oblique views to check the depth. So the arm goes oblique, takes a shot. You can see how far in that needle end is. So, so that needle is a bit too deep. So I take it out. I keep the same line. I'm just going to be shallower, right? Lower pole, shallower angle, Again, hit the calyx, take an oblique shot. That's much better access. Obviously, it takes uh, you know months and months to really get comfortable with access. Uh, the more you do it, and the more you see, obviously, the the more comfortable you'll be. So I wanted to talk about flexible nephroscopy briefly. Um, Flexible nephroscopy really should be a part of of most um, standard PCNL cases. I say that this is where you earn your outcomes, because all those little fragments that are floating around, this is where you're going to find them. Um, And to keep orientation, I tend to teach our residents that they should deflect up and rotate towards the pole. Uh, Obviously, this is a bit different than when we do flexible ureteroscopy. Um, This does put us in somewhat of an upside-down position, but it helps us to keep orientation uh, where the calyces are. Uh, Again, another brief video. Um, So starting at the
0: upper pole, this is the same case. So we're rotating up towards the upper pole.
1: We're rotating up, rotating towards the mid-pole. Typically we do a little bit of contrast in a spot fluoroscopy to confirm the case that we're in. Again, we're rotating up and towards the side that we're on another spot with some contrast. And then finally, for that lower pole, we're going to rotate our hand all the way around to keep that orientation. I find that going upside down or backwards is a bit tricky, um, so I tend to, again, deflect up. And the spot there shows us the pole. So if you look around, take a very detailed look, uh, do it multiple times, you'll find all those little stone fragments that are floating around. Get those out and improve your stone free rates. Uh, briefly talking about sheath sizes. So a standard PCNL, we typically think of as a 24 or 30 French sheath. Uh, I call it, this as functional suction. Um, so you can really suck out all one the clot that you invariably will see with most PCNLs, but also you can functionally suck out all the uh, small stone fragments. With Mini-Perk, Typically ranging in size from 15 to 23 French. Most of these scopes are about 12 French with a six French working channel. Uh, A lot of people use laser for these. You can use a lithotrite. Most of those lithotrites are like four to five approximately French. Um, So there's limited suction. So if it is a bloody case, if there's a lot of clot, you're gonna have a little more uh, difficulty with it. Now, smaller puncture, so hopefully less bleeding, but uh, that can be a problem with with, uh, bloody cases. Oftentimes this relies on the venturi effect to remove stones. Uh, meaning you are creating a lower pressure uh, uh, system in the sheath due to irrigation and the stones tend to uh, uh, fall into the sheath and out. Um, I think the my main concern with mini uh, PCNL is the limited flexible nephroscopy. So you need to be really careful with case selection. If you're gonna have a stone that's gonna break apart in lots of pieces and float all over the kidney, you might not be able to go fetch those unless you do say um, ureteroscopy, flexible ureteroscopy at the same time. Ultra many... Uh, even smaller, eleven or thirteen French sheaths. Um, these are even smaller scopes. Um, typically, you can only use or you can only use a laser um, in these, and really, there's no great option for flexible nephroscopy. Um, so you you need to use a flexible ureteroscope to take a good look around the kidney at the end. Uh, regarding drainage, um, nephrostomy tube is really the classic uh, way that we drain um, patients post PCNL. Um, the benefit of an nephrostomy tube is typically it comes out before the patient goes home. So the idea is that the patient goes home without any stones and without any tubes. Um, and we see that uh, this is, in fact, uh, improves patient quality of life. This was a nice study uh, done by uh, Dr. Zhao um, showing that WISQOL was improved at 7 to 10 days uh, in patients who have a nephrostomy tube. Uh, however, I think we commonly see patients uh, performed um, a tubeless or with a uretal stem placed. Um, uh, the benefit of the tubeless approach is, in my opinion, is that it almost guarantees that the patients go home on post up day one unless uh, they have some infectious complication or bleeding complication. Um, in addition, you know, those cases where we remove the nephrostomy tube and uh, the patient has clot colic or colic post post, um, uh, post removal and they need to have a stent replaced, um, it essentially removes that uh, potential as well. Uh, it also removes, in my opinion, the potential to form a urinoma and um, and have that uh, uh, ileus that we sometimes see after neprostomy tube removal. So, you know, I do like to use a tubeless approach. Certainly if I'm gonna do a second procedure, a planned second look, I tend to leave an nephrostomy tube in place. Totally tubeless has been described for standard PCNL, uh, although it is more common for the mini and the ultra mini cases. So outcomes of PCNL. So The uh, uh, CROWS study um, showed a 30-day stone free rate of approximately 75%. This was a mix of various imaging modalities. Uh, I think that classically you'll see papers describe 90 plus percent uh, stone free rates. I think um, that can often be debated. I actually really like this recent study. It's actually just in the literature now out of IU um, showing uh, true stone free rates of around fifty-seven to sixty-five percent, and I think this is what a lot of people see in practice. Again, this is looking at all uh, fragments after PCNL. Um, uh, you know, we aren't the ninety-five plus uh, percent uh, success rate. I think we are more in that sixty to seventy percent range. Uh, but the number of times that we do a second look procedure is is certainly less common. In um, the Crow study, was about fifteen percent. In the IU paper, I think uh, twenty-two to or twenty to thirty percent. Of, of patients. Obviously, some people are more aggressive with, with getting out every single stone, um, uh, which I do agree with, um, uh, but that is uh, certainly a preference um, uh, to try to retrieve every little fragment. Complications of PCNL certainly the infectious complications uh, uh, tend to be most concerning. Um, although rates of urosepsis are are fairly low, less than five percent. Transfusion rates, although the range of this paper uh, was up to seventeen and a half percent, I typically think it's in the two to three percent range. Um, that's with kind of contemporary um, techniques. Urinoma, as I said, uh, is fairly rare when we use a ureteral stent, but it is it is uh, seen if you had a say a pelvic perforation and you left an nephrostomy tube. The chance of a pleural injury and in hydrothorax is also fairly rare, but increases with the supercostal axis. This is a pleural uh, shot of somebody's chest after a supercostal axis. You can see that dark um, line here signifying the uh, uh, hydrothorax that occurred. Uh, but the really severe complications, say, uh, mortality, pseudoaneurysms, and injuries to uh, um, nearby organs are all quite rare. So last but not least, shockwave lithotripsy. So uh, 1980 The Lancet, uh, classic paper um, by Professor Chaussi um, really revolutionized um, stone treatment. Uh, and I think had a lot of doubters when they said that they could use shockwaves to break up stones. Um, but obviously they, they, they uh, proved all them wrong. Um, we'll talk briefly about the mechanism of action. Obviously you see a lot of this in um, uh, the core curriculum. I think it's important to note that, that stones break up due to multiple different forces. So you have shearing forces on the leading edge of the stone where the shock waves come in. You have spall fractures on the uh, on the posterior edge, where stone waves are essentially bouncing off the interface between the stone and the fluid around it, uh, and then bouncing back towards the center. And because you've got waves coming from the front, waves coming from the back, you have super focusing of waves in the center of the stone to also break up stones. Um, because of the force of the shock wave, they create a um, essentially a negative pressure behind them that creates cavitation bubbles. And as these bubbles fracture or as these bubbles collapse, that also creates a force that can help break up stones. So a lot of different forces at play to break up um, uh, break up stones. There's three different types of lithotriptors. We'll review them briefly. So EHL, electrohydraulic. These are the spark plug. Elect- so you've got a spark plug that discharges in fluid that is then focused on this uh, ellipsoid reflector uh, onto the F2 focal point uh, of the stone. These tend to be fairly strong with the lithotriptors, but uh, they can also be inconsistent uh, with the strength of their um, uh, shocks on a per shock basis. Uh, in addition, uh, the lifespan of spark plugs um, uh, is low, so they do often require more maintenance. Than some of the other uh, machines. Uh, this was the uh, uh, classic Dornier HM3 lithotripter. Uh, was a spark uh, or a electrohydraulic lithotripter. Electromagnetic lithotripters. Um, so uh, an electrical impulse is applied to these electromagnetic coils, which then uh, move a membrane to create the shock um, pulse. It's then focused, obviously, down to the FT point. Um, these are more reproducible, consistent in their strength. Uh, these also tend to be a bit more durable than EHL lithotrypters. Um, but uh, because of the small focal region of high energy that is created with this type of lithotrypter, there is the potential for a uh, high risk of hematoma. Lastly, the piezoelectric machine. Um, so these have an array of ceramic elements um, uh, that all are activated at the same time with an electric spark. Um, uh, or I'm sorry, the electrical impulse, um, and they, uh, they then focus their energy on that F2 uh, focal point. Um, the benefit of the piezoelectric is because this is a large array, each individual shock uh, from each uh, element is quite low. So the, the full strength of the shock is, des- is delivered over a large surface area, so potentially uh, there's less pain for patients, um, but also there's the potential to have a less efficacious treatment. So when we think about patient selection for shockwave lithotripsy, um, uh, certainly the, the main criteria besides stone size that we talked about at the very beginning is going to be the stone density uh, and the skin to stone distance. Um, this was a nice study, um, essentially comparing those two, and you can see um, that for patients with a softer stone, so less than nine hundred Hounsfield units, with a skin to stone distance less than nine centimeters, uh, has sort of the highest success rate. Conversely. A stone that has greater than 900 pounds of units and greater than 9 cm skin to stone certainly has a lower success rate. Other stone compositions, if you know the patient's history, um, certainly cysteine stones are essentially resistant to shock wave lithotripsy. Um, brush head stones are, are quite hard to break up with shock waves um, and calcium oxide monohydrate as well. Um, but I would tell you that for something like a monohydrate or brush head stone, if you have somebody who's, who's thin, it certainly could be considered, but just expect a, a lower success rate with those patients. So how to do shockwave lithotripsy? Um, again, I don't uh, uh, claim to have a, an extensive experience. I was uh, in the resident groups that did, you know, typically around 10 shockwaves throughout their training. Um, but I, I do some now uh, for patients that uh, are appropriate candidates. I do get a KUB the um, day of surgery, um, because you wanna make sure that stone is radiopaque. R, Uh, machine is uh, coupled to fluoroscopy, although there are machines that are coupled to ultrasound that that you could avoid this if needed. Um, I put the patient in a supine position if they're going to be renal stone, proximal, or distal ureter. I do do a prone position for patients whose stones overlie the bony pelvis. I do general anesthetic. This uh, obviously allows for better control of respiration. In addition, we use an EHL lithotrypter, so it would be a little more painful for a patient to be under local. But local, Sedation, totally reasonable for a piezoelectric machine. We typically start at a low energy um, and a low rate, 60 shocks a minute. Um, after about 200 shocks, we do a pause. Uh, and the benefit of the pause is that there is compensatory vasoconstriction um, to potentially decrease the rate of hematoma. Uh, it only takes a couple minutes, and I think it's uh, very um, uh, reasonable and, and safe, and um, you know, we, can, we can spare that time to uh, decrease that risk. After the pause, we uh, start to slowly increase the energy and increase the rate. There have been some nice studies looking at the effect of shockwave rate on success. In um, this study here, you can clearly see that when you get to 120 shocks a minute, your success goes down and your pain goes up. Um, so um, we tend to go maximum 90 shocks a minute. Um, but for a stone that is, say, moving around a fair bit, I think 60 shocks a minute is very reasonable. It's really the same principle that you see with Um, with laser lithotripsy, where you have a lot of retropulsion uh, with a higher frequency. The maximum number of shocks is really determined by the manufacturer of your lithotripter. Typically, you can put more shocks in the ureter than the kidney because there's less concern for uh, parenchymal injury. Um, Our machine, we can do 2,500 shocks in the kidney, 3,000 in the ureter. Um, but you really should only use as much as you need so if the stone appears to be breaking up nicely uh, and you're done by say 1500 shocks then obviously stop no need to put the kidney at risk by completing uh, or by maxing out outcomes of uh, shock wave lithotripsy if you're looking at true stone free rates they're going to be on the lower side so the lower pole studies showed again uh, uh, true stone free rates of around uh, 35 percent you'll see some reports higher obviously it just depends on how you define success Um, I tell patients that around 80% of the time, they're not going to have to have another procedure. So the rate of need in a second procedure is around 20%. So they might have some stones left in the kidney that fall into the lower pole that they don't pass. And, you know, again, for most people, that's fine. Um, They might pass them at some point down the road. You have to be cautious to make sure they're not growing um, bigger and and focusing on uh, uh, prevention. But for the most part, 80% uh, do not need a second procedure. Absolute contraindications, obviously uh, we review these often, so bleeding diathesis, so anybody who's on anticoagulation or have a, has a known uh, uh, coagulopathy should not uh, undergo shock wave lithotripsy. I do do shock wave lithotripsy on baby aspirin and I haven't had any specific issues with it and there's the literature support that. Certainly pregnancy you shouldn't do it, active infection you shouldn't do it, or if you have a distal obstruction you should not uh, do shock wave lithotripsy. Complications of shockwave lithotripsy. So a clinically significant hematoma like that um, is fairly rare. If you scanned everybody after shockwave lithotripsy, you'd probably see some small hematomas, probably in that 15 to 20 percent range. Steinstrasse or a Stone Street in German, where they have a collection of stones in the ureter, happens around you know five to twenty percent of the time. Again, higher risk with larger stone burden. Uh, there have been uh, uh, reports on increased rates of hypertension and diabetes um, although um, these have not been founded in subsequent issues so i truthfully do not counsel patients on this i typically talk about the rate of hematoma the chance of a stein or just the chance that they have residual fragments altogether so we're right at about 45 minutes Uh, i'm gonna stop there and um I didn't introduce Sun Nguyen at the beginning, but uh, Sun Nguyen is one of our excellent residents here at UC Davis, and he was going to uh, uh, help coordinate the questions that were asked.
0: Yeah, uh, I categorized the questions into three categories. Uh, the first is uteroscopy, so I'll start with that. Uh, there's a couple questions regarding that. Uh, in which cases would you consider placing a stent prior to the flexible uteroscopy, Dr. K Ambassador?
1: That's a really good question. Um, I, I know that, that some people certainly... Where you place stents um I, it is not part of my standard practice um uh, i only put a stent in if i cannot get the ureteroscope up on itself and obviously we, we always talk about not um, forcing the scope um when i do ureteroscopy uh, after i get my first wire in i i use what's called an eight ten dilator um, so i put an eight french um uh, into the ureter and then i put a 10 french right over that um although it's listed as a dilator it really is a calibrator so it tells me how big that ureter is um, and if the 10 french portion goes easily uh, then i tend to proceed to placing an access sheath if the tenth french portion does not go easily i typically do not attempt an access sheath um, and then i'll try to put the scope in but if the if the eight french is really tight then i'm certainly not going to be able to fit my seven and a half french scope in and that's when i place this then beforehand
0: and to follow up with that, during the intro, interop, uh, we usually place a ureteral acid sheath. And for that, do we typically place a stent, and for how long? Afterwards? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, I, I, I do place a lot of stents because I do use a lot of sheaths. So I do think the ureter certainly gets a bit more irritated afterwards. Again, the, the Tractor paper shows that ureteral injury is grade one through three in 50% of cases, and I, and I, and I see that. But the vast majority of these are, are grade one. But I would put a stent in for, for a grade one. So the only time I don't put a stent in after an extra sheath um, is as you're doing a pull out, if the ureter looks essentially pristine, if the ureter looks like it has no uh, irritation, no injury, um, then I would consider doing, doing stentless. Um, certainly they have to have a normal contralateral kidney uh, in order to have that place. But in my, my experience, it's probably less than 10% that I actually do stentless ureteroscopy.
0: And uh, in your lecture, you mentioned that even with ureteral acid sheet, their their ureteral structure rates aren't as high compared to impacted stone. So when you're treating an impacted stone surgically, how long do you typically leave the stents in for?
1: Good question. So... uh um, and that, that was a prospective study um, by, uh, by Karen Stern, Dr. Stern at, uh, at Mayo, um, uh, looking at uh, rates of stricture after a ureteral access sheath injury. So uh, if I have an impacted stone where the ureter looks really irritated, really inflamed, I tend to leave it in for two weeks. That tends to be the longest I will leave a stent in. Um, certainly a really severe injury, I mean, think something on the level of like an endo ureterotomy um, type, type depth of injury, I'd probably do four weeks, but that, that's pretty um, rare. So I would say two weeks is at most for those really inflamed uh, from impacted stones.
0: Got it. And in the community, you know, some urologists tend to split up the uroscopy. They'll do one side and then come back to the other side later on. What's your opinion on doing both at once? Yeah, I I,
1: I, think, I think a stage procedure is very reasonable. It depends on um, your equipment and um, uh, timing, obviously, and access. I I. Tend to struggle just getting people um, into the OR um, uh, just based on how busy we are out here. Um, so I figure if I'm if I'm in the OR and I've got them asleep, I'll go ahead and do both sides of the vast majority of the time. Um, so yeah, I don't hesitate doing a bilateral case. Um, certainly, if you're going to do a bilateral case, you have to leave a stent on one side. Um, the second side, though, if the ureter looks good, it wouldn't be unreasonable to leave it
0: without. Got it. Um, and then I'll move on to the ass walls. Um, uh you mentioned that you know stone size and then skin to um density or the density wise what about does a machine matter for that stone free rate
1: yeah it's a good question i think a lot of a lot of um manufacturers will will say that they they can go to um a a a greater depth um they can expand the indications and i I think that's just really on a perm uh per case basis um you know, it, it, if I was a patient and I had to head stone surgery, I think shock of lithotripsy is what I want. But again, you want to look at the uh, stone parameters, the size of the stone, um, uh, the depth of the stone, the density, and say, is it realistic that this is actually going to treat the stone successfully? Um, and so I try to have that conversation. The, the lithotripsy that we use, um, it's a Storz F2. I think it even quotes up to 15 or 18 centimeters of depth. Um, you know, my personal experience I haven't had that success at that, at that point. So if you're talking about 15 centimeters skin to stone, you know, I think there, there's gonna just be a lower success rate. But that's, again, my my personal experience with
0: shockwave. Uh, just going back to the uteroscopy uh, really quick, if you notice extrav during the case, how long do you leave the stent in for?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, most of the time, the uh, if you had a foreign seal rupture, um, uh, we'll heal actually within about 48 to 72 hours. I mean, the same principle applies when we're doing, say, PCNLs um so i wouldn't leave the stent for any longer really the length of time that i leave a stent in is really dependent on what the ureter looks like um, however if i did notice a perforation and extravasation um, i might consider leaving a Foley catheter to help decompress um, if there was say concern for uh, infection especially but um, the length of time that i leave the stent in is really independent of, of, of a perforation
0: um, and then one last question, um, in terms of patients who had a stone previously came in with pain, however, became asymptomatic during uh, medical explosion therapy within six weeks. Um, and then, but they still have intermittent pain. Do you re-image or proceed with OR or, yeah, know, that's a or. That's a great,
1: that's a great question. Actually, um, Brian Eisner, um, at the MGH recently had a, a paper, I think within the last couple of years, um. Showing that about 25 to 30% of patients with asymptomatic um, uh, asymptomatic uh, stones attempted passage actually retain their stones. So I do do a lot of re-imaging for patients who fall into that category. Um, I, I tend to really push patients to to strain their urine um, and be cognizant of, of if they pass the stone, because uh, that would avoid that that necessary step. Um, I also don't like to. You know nobody likes to go to the operating room and find no stone there so i i personally would rather have a repeat imaging procedure before um i i have a, a, re, a necessary surgery um but if it's a distal stone that you're looking at passing i think that you can do a limited ct protocol the pelvis only less radiation certainly there's a cost there but less radiation and and no for certain if the stones are radio opaque um if there is evidence of uh, the stone on, say, the scout film from a CT scan, um, I think you can use KUB to follow. Um, but, you know, a KUB that doesn't show the stone and the patient didn't see the stone, I think you have to really take that on a first-case basis because the worst thing we could do is leave a stone um, that is unknown. And actually, you know, we, we, we do see that happen from time to time. So,
0: And I think that is it.
1: Great. Well uh, I did leave my email address at the at the beginning of the talk. Um, obviously this is going to be um, uh, recorded and posted somewhere but feel free to email me if you have any questions and again please everybody stay safe and I uh, wish you all well.
0: Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website urologycovid.ucsf.edu.